Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. It's the middle of April in the United States, and there are increasingly two narratives dominating the coronavirus pandemic, at least in terms of global international politics. The first is, it seems at least, the failure, particularly in the United States, to confront the virus in comparison to the way in which the Chinese successfully overcame it earlier in the year. And the second is the increasingly overt U.S. withdrawal from international treaties, marked above all by uh, President Trump's rejection of the World Health Organization. So two things come to mind. Has the West lost it? And has China won? Is the coronavirus pandemic a reflection of the fundamental shift in international politics? Uh, One person who's been predicting this shift now for several years is the Singapore-based writer and former diplomat, Kishore uh, Mabubani. Uh, Kishore's last two books are Has the West Lost It? and Has China Won? Kishore, are you surprised with the catastrophic response in the United States to the crisis? Uh, uh, Absolutely surprised. Because I thought the one thing that the United States was good at and one thing the United States led the world in was in mastery of advanced science and technology. And if, and if you had asked anybody in the world, if the world faced a major crisis, uh, a pandemic, uh, a possible space collision, uh, where would the world go to to turn for advice and assistance? They would have said, oh, we must go to the United States. It's the most competent country in the world. So the, the, the handling of this COVID-19 pandemic has shown how much the world has changed and how much more competent China has become and how much more incompetent uh, the United States has become. And this is what my book, uh, Has China Won, tries to address. It points out the structural flaws that have led to this decline in American performance. So this winning of the new global political battle of China and the crisis in the United States, are they like two, two escalators going up and down? Are they passing each other in the night or are they bound up with one another? Would we have, would we have the same crisis um, in the United States if it wasn't for China? Well, I think um, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, there are two different uh, escalators uh, at play here. The United States, uh, after winning the Cold War so handsomely uh, around 1990, 
uh, as I say in my book, has the West lost it? It decided to go to sleep uh, at precisely the moment when China and India woke up. And the waking up of China and India is very significant because from the year 1 to the year 1820, the two largest economies of the world were always those of China and India. So the past 200 years of Western domination of world history have been a major historical aberration. All aberrations come to a natural end. So it's perfectly natural to see the return of China and India. Unfortunately, when they decide to wake up, the United States decided to go to sleep. So in the past 30 years, you've seen this dramatic uh, difference in the fortunes of the United States and China because in the case of China, the Chinese people uh, in the past 30 years have experienced a greater improvement in their standard of living than they have experienced in 3,000 years of Chinese history. So the past 30 years have been the best in the past 3,000 years. By contrast, the United States uh, is the only major developed country where the average income of the bottom 50%, 50%, has gone down over the uh, past, over the 30-year period. So you can see how one escalator has been going down and one escalator has been going up. Keisha, a couple of weeks ago, we had your friend, uh, Singapore-based Parag Khanna on the show, and he dramatically distinguishes China from the rest of Asia. He sees China, I think I don't want to speak on his behalf, but on the show he argued that China is a, a repressive authoritarian state hmm. and he, uh, he applauds developments outside China in Asia. Hmm. Are you troubled by the politics of China when you, when you write a book entitled Has China Won? Hmm. Might the subtitle be Authoritarianism Wins? Uh, well, I think, you know, the, the thing about China that we must always remember is that it has 1.4 billion people. And holding the country of 1.4 billion together every day in one country is a major political achievement. And the question is, how do you judge where China is today? Do you want to judge where China is today? against where the United States is today? Or do you want to judge China against where it was even a hundred years ago? And if you look at China, the Chinese have had a political history that goes back maybe 3,000 years, 4,000 years, some people even say 5,000 years. But in this 3,000-year period, the worst hundred years that China ever experienced was the century of humiliation from 1842 to 1949, where they had the Opium Wars, the British seizing territory, the West imposing settlements in Shanghai, British and French forces sacking the Summer Palace and destroying artworks that were worth a thousand Notre Dames. So, you know, the Chinese experienced incredible pain and humiliation for 100 years. And all the Chinese have been trying to do is to say that never again shall we experience a century of pain and humiliation. And that's their motivation. That's what's driving them. 
And to achieve this goal of making sure they're never humiliated again, the Chinese have learned one very powerful lesson, which is that when the center is weak, the people suffer and China gets ravaged by the outside world. But when the center is strong, then the Chinese people benefit. And indeed, in the last 30 years, as I said earlier, the Chinese people have had the greatest improvement in the standard of living, and that's correlated with a strong central government. And today, there's no way that the Japanese or the British or the French or even the Americans who dream of sending their troops in, onto Chinese soil and attacking China. So that's what a strong central government has given the Chinese people. And when the West calls on China saying, hey, why don't you loosen up? Why don't you become more open and liberal like us? The, the Chinese see this as poisoned advice designed to make them weak again so that the West can take advantage of them. Do you believe that? Do you think that um, that, that calls to democratize China is a coded message to try to, to weaken the country? Well, I think if you are a Chinese, uh, you would be very natural to be very suspicious when the West comes to you with advice and say, we are here to help you. The Chinese will say, we remember what you did to us 100 years ago, 80 years ago. And, and they believe uh, that at the end of the day, the West will, of course, feel very uncomfortable with a strong China and do whatever it can to weaken China. Now, of course, there is another question, which is whether or not uh, China's political system needs to change over the long run. And I actually believe that over the long run, China's political system will have to adapt and progressively uh, become more and more democratic in one way or another. But I think it's a process that the Chinese have to undertake by themselves, uh, finding their own ways of political evolution. But it's not going to happen in the way that the Americans tried to do it in Iraq by sending U.S. forces in to export democracy. Whenever U.S. forces, whenever US forces land in a country and try to export democracy, you can see the disasters that happen. Kishore, as you know, there's a great deal of controversy in, in the United States in particular about the way in which the, the Chinese government initially dealt with the, uh, the pandemic in, 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 in the Wuhan province. I know you're based in uh, Singapore rather than China, but what's your sense? Why were the Chinese successful? And have they, and are they telling the truth about the numbers of people who died in, in the beginning of the year? Well, I think there's no doubt that uh, in the initial part of the process, uh, the Chinese made several mistakes. Uh, and I think even they have acknowledged the mistakes. For example, they've acknowledged that it was a mistake to try and muzzle the Chinese doctor, Dr. Li Wenling, who died. And somewhat unusually, the Chinese have actually apologized for that. And the, and the Chinese have now declared him a hero uh, for doing that. But at the same time, I've also spoken to some health experts, doctors, and so on and so forth. And they say that whenever there's a new virus outbreak, it's very difficult to tell whether this is going to be massive or whether this is a small, uh, isolated phenomenon. So it's quite natural to be confused in the initial stages. And what's interesting is the judgment of not you and me, but of medical and scientific professionals on this subject. 
And if you don't want to listen to what the WHO said, the WHO said the Chinese uh, recovery was remarkable. But if you go to the Lancet, a very prestigious, uh, respectable, uh, academic British medical journal, they say they, they have a letter signed by uh, lots of medical professional scientists saying, hey, what the Chinese did was truly remarkable. And it is shown, by the way, in the numbers and how after the initial explosion in one province, they managed to control it uh, subsequently. And I think the world should be grateful that the Chinese were able to control it because if the Chinese had not been able to control it, the rest of the world would have been affected even far more than the way we've been affected so far. Is it conceivable that China will begin to dominate uh, global organizations like the World Health Organization in the new vacuum of power as America withdraws from organizations like the WHO? Will the Chinese move in and start to shape the international order in their own image and interests? Yeah, yeah uh, 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 Andrew, let me say some good news because I know I may be depressing some of your listeners. And there's no doubt that Chinese power and influence will grow in the world. But the Chinese don't have a kind of universalizing mission in the way that America has had for the past 100, 200 years. Americans believe that America is the best society in the world and anybody in the world can become an American. Anybody in the world can replicate the American uh, success stories. The Chinese are very different. If the Americans say anybody can be an American, the Chinese say only the Chinese can be Chinese. And so the, the Chinese goal is to revive Chinese civilization, to make it a strong, respected civilization. But they have no desire to impose their model or their way of life on other countries. And their view is, uh, you, you choose your way of life. We choose our way of life. We, let's have a live and let live policy. So the Chinese won't go around the world in a kind of a messianic, uh, proselytizing fashion and try to change other societies. And on the vis-a-vis -vis international organizations, uh, so far, what's remarkable is that the whole family of UN organizations, multilateral organizations, which were a gift from the West to the rest of the world after 1945, as China becomes more powerful, it will be natural and logical to assume that China will try to dismantle these Western-originated uh, multilateral organizations. But my prediction is that China will do the opposite. China will actually try to retain and strengthen the family of UN organizations and organizations like the World Health Organization and the World Trade Organization because China has now become the number one beneficiary of the rules-based order that the West has created. And if you read what the, the speeches made by the Chinese leaders, they actually want to strengthen the global multilateral order and not try to weaken it. So in the same period in which, unfortunately, sadly, going against going against its own interests, the United States, the complete support of the European Union has been weakening multilateral organizations, China would like to see them strengthen. What's the future, Kishore, of, of the United States and an increasingly China-centric world? Can, can America play number two in the future? Well, I mean, that's, that's the question I, I try to address uh, in my book, uh, Has China Won? 
I actually think that uh, uh, the, the we can have a world in which um, America can be strong and China can be strong and they can both live with each other. And, and I see, in the, that's the conclusion of my book, that a strong China need not necessarily be one that is bad for America. A strong China can be one in which uh, U.S. and China can work together. And what will that look like, this working together? It sounds uh, very optimistic, but um, America has dominated political and economic life in the world now for 50 or almost 100 years. Why would they want to share power with the Chinese? Well, I think you put your finger on exactly the right question to be raising. What is the primary national interest uh, of the people of the United States of America? Is it the primary national interest of the United States to improve the well-being of 330 million American people, or is it the primary national interest of the United States of America to preserve its primacy in the global system? And these are two very, very different goals. And I actually believe, going back to my point about how the average income of the bottom 50% in America has gone down over a 30-year period, and I, and, I, and I provide a remarkable number of statistics in my book confirming that, I actually believe the time has now come for the United States to focus its attention and energies on improving the well-being of the 330 million American people and not to preserve its primacy uh, in the global system because if preserving the primacy means that your own people suffer, then it doesn't make sense at all. So it actually, in the small, interconnected, interdependent world we live in today, all countries in the world are basically like cabins on the same boat. So if the United States is a cabin on the same boat as China, which today has become a virus-infected cruise ship, by the way, the United States should be working together with China and other countries to tackle the common problems so that the people in America, especially the bottom 50%, begin to benefit from the strength of America and not suffer. Do you think that President Trump is an aberration in terms of his xenophobia, his tendency towards authoritarianism, his populism, his, his hostility to science and expertise? Well, I or think... is he a warning about how American democracy can actually degenerate yeah. into an authoritarian populism? Well, I mean, here, unfortunately, I have some bad news uh for the American people, because if the American people assume that all their problems are just due to one person, Donald Trump, and that the solution for all of America's problems is just to remove Donald Trump, then I'm afraid they engage in massive self-deception. Because frankly, the reason why Donald Trump was elected was because there was a sea of despair among the white working classes who felt that the elites in the East Coast and West Coast were not listening to them. So what America has developed are deep structural problems which I have documented in my book. And you and you, the getting rid of Trump in no way solves these deep structural issues. And as I have a chapter called Can America Make U-Turns? 
in which I argue that America has got to make major U-turns in the domestic sphere and clearly address the question of inequality in America, which has become horrendous. And at the same time, America needs to make a massive U-turn outside America and stop wasting its money and resources maintaining a 13 uh, aircraft carrier fl uh, fleets because these aircraft carriers have now become sitting ducks in the face of $100,000 uh, hypersonic missiles that China has developed. So America needs to make a massive U-turn in many of its policies so that it can take care uh, of its own people. And my the goal of my book, paradoxically, is to help the American people and not in any way attack them or undermine them. Is the pandemic the moment when America begins to address these issues? Or will the pandemic only compound the inequality and structural inefficiencies and dysfunctionality of contemporary America? You know, the, the Chinese word for crisis, I'm told, uh, is a combination of two characters, danger and opportunity. And certainly the pandemic has produced a great danger and you have to pay attention to it. But it also provides a great opportunity for Americans to reflect on why is it that America has handled this uh, crisis so badly. And let me give you just one statistic. Eh? On April 12, America had half a million cases and 20,000 deaths. If America had been able to match Singapore's record in number of cases and number of deaths, America would have had 131,000 cases and 382 deaths instead of 20,000 deaths. Now, those figures show that something comprehensively has gone wrong in America's health management systems. And there should be a very deep reflection on why is it that America, which spends more uh, on health as a percentage of GNP, almost 16% compared to 4 to 5% for Singapore, why are the health results so bad? And this is, of course, related to the overall uh, deterioration of the social and economic conditions in the United States, which should be addressed. And therefore, the pandemic should provide an opportunity for deep reflection, which I hope my book can provide and uh, try to explain the structural forces that have led to these problems in America. Keisha, I thought you were going to cheer me up. You've made me even more miserable. Can I come and live with you in Singapore? No, I, I, I think, no, basically what Singapore has done is not a miracle. What Singapore has done can be shared with the rest of the world. What Singapore has done is pure common sense. And just to just on one quick liner, Amatya Sen said that, that for societies to succeed, you need the invisible hand of free markets and the visible hand of good governance. And unfortunately, as a result of the Reagan-Thatcher revolution, uh, America has been focused on the invisible hand of free markets and completely dismantling the visible hand of good governance. So that's all that America has to do. Now rebuild many of the institutions that America used to have that were strong and resilient, and, and, and they, they, America can do, do once again what it did well in the past. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure 
to visit us at lithub.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.